Hello, welcome to episode number 127 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Louis Fishman, Associate Professor at Brooklyn College at the City University of New York and the author of Jews and Palestinians in the Late Ottoman Empire, 1908 to 1914, Claiming the Homeland, published by Edinburgh University Press. The book looks closely at power dynamics in the late Ottoman period and particularly how Jews and Arabs in Palestine were already struggling making competing claims under the framework of the Ottoman Empire, of which they were both still subjects of course and which few at the time could even imagine collapsing. Before we get started, first let me remind you that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Membership gets you various extras including transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, including a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and and ebooks. As a member, you also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. Finally, I also send links to articles and other content related to the subject in the email that I send out to members with every new episode, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Louis Fishman. The book particularly examines the period after the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, which initially at least appeared to promise a new age of equal constitutional citizenship for the various communities of the Ottoman Empire. I started by asking Louis Fishman why this era is crucial for understanding the roots of today's situation, today's conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. The late Ottoman period, I believe, is an essential period to understanding today's conflict because first and foremost, if we go back in time, we'll see that this is actually the last time that Palestinians are citizens of a state. And I think when we go back to the Ottoman period, we're going to see that it was the only period that, for the most part, Jews and Palestinians were on a equal playing, playing ground. And I would even say a somewhat equal playing ground because many of the Jewish people there at the time were not citizens of the state. My book, of course, focuses more on the ones that were citizens and looks at the, the beginning of the conflict through an Ottoman lens. How was this debated in the parliament? And here we have Palestinian legislators in the Ottoman parliament. Of course, these are representatives of Jerusalem or Jaffa or, or Akka uh, in the north. So I think if we, first and foremost, we're going to see that Palestinians are citizens of the state. Remember, after 1917 and the British occupation of Palestine, they are not. Then after we have the 1948, which was, of course, 
course, the, the birth of the Israeli state, but for the Palestinians, but this was the Nakba. And later on, we have, of course, from 40 to 67, they're part of Jordan and the West Bank, part of Egypt and Gaza, but they're never citizens. And under, you know, post-1967, they are now uh, under occupation. So by going back to the Ottoman period, we're really receiving for the first time some kind of new understanding where we see that the conflict was actually between two citizens of an Ottoman state, that both of these people did not foresee the Ottoman state collapsing in just three three to four years from 1914. And what I imagine is hardest for us to understand is that point exactly. Jews and Palestinians were part of the Ottoman Empire, part of the Ottoman state and system. So for that reason, they don't know what's going to happen in three or four years. And I think that's what's so so fascinating. I mean, it's for easy for us to say now, oh, of course, we have, you know, the first immigration of Jews in 1881, the second immigration of Jews coming in 1905, then we have World War I, we have the Balfour Declaration and the British Mandate and Israeli State Independence and the Nakba. But we have to understand that the ones in 1914 can't foresee what's going to happen. And of course, in, in, in history, we don't play with what ifs. But there is a big what if here. You know, what if the Ottoman Empire would not have collapsed? And of course, I'd, I, I would even prefer not to use the word collapse, right? Because we know that the Ottoman Empire just didn't collapse. This was a war that went on for many years. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion that they were going to lose either. And if we look during this period, we're going to see that there were some Ottoman Zionists fighting for the Ottoman army all the way up until 1918. The second prime minister of Israel, Moshe Sharet, was in the Ottoman army until 1918, after the Balfour Declaration is issued. So if we put it in the, to this context, we're going to see a very, very different world. And it's that world that I'm trying to, to show people. The period that both Palestinians and Jews were fighting for the Ottoman Empire, fighting in the Ottoman army, but at the same time, they were both trying to make claim of their homeland in Palestine. For Jews, this was the ancient homeland, spiritual homeland, turned into an autonomous center for Jewish life, for independent Jewish life. And for the Palestinians, this was a local patriotism. And they saw already in this period that this land was under threat. And I think that's something we need to see if we go back to the Ottoman Empire. So the book focuses on this period, particularly following the 1908 Young Turk Revolution. And this was a period, as you describe it in the book, when Palestinians and Jews each began to transform into political communities and they formed these distinct local identities. And they really realized the need to take concrete steps to claim what they saw as their homeland. And part of that meant bringing their cases to the Ottoman imperial capital, Istanbul. So you see there a process of both Palestinians and Jews placing their hopes in Istanbul, in the authorities, in the Ottoman capital. How did both communities see their relations with the Ottoman authorities and how might that be surprising for us looking back today? Well, I think, for, first of all, for, for Palestinians during this era, we see a connection and we see an intellectual elite that I think post-1948 is very, very hard to imagine. I mean, if we go back and we look at Ruhiya Khaladi, he was a parliamentarian from Jerusalem. He was an Ottoman, not just citizen, but he was an integral part of the Ottoman system. And even if we go back further into the 1870s, into the first parliament, the first Ottoman parliament under Abdul Hamid II, you have used 
Dia El Khaladi, who, in addition to being a parliamentarian, was, you know, he taught uh, languages and literature in Vienna for a short period. He was an Ottoman ambassador at one period in his lifetime. So what we're seeing is we're, we're seeing that, of course, when we talk about Palestinians, is that this in 1908, they're, they're really, this is the period, as you, as you mentioned, they're transforming into a political community. But they were Ottomans, and that's the world they saw themselves in acting within. So when I think for the Palestinian case, when it when it was brought to Istanbul into the different debates on Zionism during this period, I think there's a quite a bit of disappointment that the Ottoman central government does not take their claims seriously enough. And this disappointment in itself is leading and strengthening their their unity that they are alone in the struggle. Now, during this period, we have Syrian parliamentarians and, and other parliamentarians outside Palestine defending the Palestinian claim that, yes, the Jews are going to try to, to establish an independent homeland in the land. But these are second-tiered ones. Really, what we're talking about is people, Palestinian Muslims and Christians, that see a, a, a real imminent threat that their land is in danger of being taken over. And they're losing to that to a Jewish community that's also in Istanbul. And it's this, if you look at someone like Moshe Sharet, once again, the second prime minister of Israel, we know that both David Ben-Gurion and, and Moshe Sharet and, and quite a few others studied in Istanbul. They studied law. And we see at the same time the Zionist organization. So we have on one hand, we have people from the first Aliyah that were Jews, that their parents were immigrants, going to Istanbul and integrating in the system, going to school in the Ottoman Empire or in Istanbul because they were Ottoman citizens, because they not only were the first generation speaking Hebrew, but they also spoke Ottoman Turkish. But we also have a Zionist newspaper network at the same time in Istanbul. So it was very clear, I think, during this era that the Palestinians were losing out in terms of influence in Istanbul itself. And for the Ottoman side, you know, their answer was often, you know, the Jewish community is a small minority in Palestine. Why are you even worried about them? You know, and it was the idea, you know, they're paying taxes and, you know, they are supporting the Ottoman state. So what's your problem with them? And during the Young Turk period, this really becomes problematic because there's, there is this new idea of equality, the idea that all citizens are going to be equal. And at this point, I think a lot of times, for the most part, um, many people thought the Palestinians were exaggerating their claim because the Jewish groups were not supporting an independent Jewish state at this by this time. The Jewish community, who are Ottoman citizens, really are part of a much more Sephardic world where, of course, there's many Ashkenazis in that group, but they're they're part of the Ottoman Jewish community as well. So, so many of the groups are saying, you know, we are not pro-Zionist in the sense that we want an independent homeland. Rather, we want to be able to speak Hebrew in our in our ancient homeland, in our spiritual homeland, and we want to transform this into a cultural homeland. And I think at, at this moment, the Zionist movement also in Europe understands the limitations of trying to demand an independent Jewish state in Palestine. Remember, years earlier, that's not in my book, Theodore Herzl, you know, went to the Sultan Abdul Hamid II that, you know, ended with no success whatsoever. So the idea was, you know, now post Young Turk Revolution, Jews can actually achieve something very close to that. And that's a cultural homeland, speaking Hebrew, being an independent community in Palestine. 
Now, one thing you emphasize throughout the book is how the colonial Jewish project developed within this Ottoman context. So it often didn't receive major opposition from the Ottoman authorities. In fact, it often received legitimacy, even praise from Ottoman officials and bureaucrats in Palestine, despite uh, Jewish migration to Palestine officially being illegal. And you give a number of concrete examples of this in the book and just sketch out those for us. You know, it may seem surprising or at least hard to imagine for some listeners. I think for the Ottomans, especially for for the young Turks, there is this really popular trend of modernizing the homeland. And the Jewish community um, actually was doing that. They're they're creating model settlements, they're farming communities. And and we have to understand that during this period, the Ottomans basically said officially, Jews, you can immigrate to everywhere except Palestine. And there are, during this period, some Jewish farming communities, one outside Istanbul and one um, very close to Izmir, a couple hours from Izmir. So I think the idea for most Ottomans is, you know what, you know, they are immigrating illegally, but once they're here, they're actually producing something. And these are these are model settlements. So yes, the different Ottoman governors praise these settlements and, and praise the work of the Zionists. And for them, probably one of the most convincing thing is that they see that they see that they're teaching their their children Turkish as a required language in the schools. Now, of course, it's required by law, but it's not that they're just adopting Turkish or the sort of, okay, we're going to integrate the Ottoman Empire. You have some really strong patriots during this period. And we know that you have a Zionist units volunteering to fight for the Ottoman army. So they're, they're saying, yes, it might be illegal, but in the end, their children are Ottomanizing. It's a slow process, but we have enough people that we can count on more than one hand of people actually becoming quite pro-Ottoman. And I think that confuses the local administration. So it's, it really is during this period that I think that the, the Ottoman administration is, to tell you the truth, really not clear on what the danger is of, of these small Jewish communities. Now, for the Palestinians, it's clear, you know, one thing that we have not looked about looked at it is the fact that so many Arabs were migrating from Palestine during this period. And the Palestinians, when they, you know, they're not just complaining about Jewish immigration. They're also complaining about saying, you know, it's not that Jews are migrating to Palestine, but but it's that we're leaving Palestine also. And we have a higher infant mortality rate also. So they they really see that their holdover, the hegemonic holdover of Palestine is slowly being eaten at, you know, being broken down. Um, and you have these new Zionists that are Ottoman Zionists that are in Istanbul. Um, and people see them as they were quite impressed by them, the ones that would meet them, because they were speaking in, in Turkish, writing in Turkish, but they were also speaking in Hebrew. There was a Hebrew speaking community in Palestine during this period. I mean, much of the, I think the myth is that, you know, Hebrew was a completely dead language and revived by Eliezer ben Yehuda, which is true to a great extent in terms of spoken Hebrew and um, it being taught as a secular language in schools. But it really becomes a language of the Jewish yeshuv, of the Jewish community in Palestine during this period. And that really creates a new dynamic that, yes, they're all Ottomans, but this is a, a new Hebrew speaking community versus other Ottoman communities that are, you know, speaking more, I would say, uh, Ladino, uh, the language of the Sephardic Jews, or uh, Yiddish, because we, of course, in Istanbul during this period, we have we have a migration of, of Ashkenazi Jews also to Istanbul, also to Izmir, also, also to places like Afyon and Çorlu, different places within Turkey. So the idea is that these Jewish people really aren't a threat, and we really should uh, we should support them.
You mentioned there some of the complexities of Ottoman Zionism. Often its proponents saw no contradiction at all between Zionism and Ottomanism as an ideology. And, uh, you know, you say there, there were many ambitious young Zionists who, who went to Istanbul and saw that as the path for them to reach their goals. Uh, so there was this, for example, a union for Ottoman Hebrew students that was set up in Istanbul, very much like other student unions at the time that were based on the different ethnic groups living in the Ottoman capital. And uh, in fact, David Ben-Gurion was the secretary general of that group at one point. And you say that Ben-Gurion decided to study in Istanbul to learn the Ottoman administration system and laws uh, since he believed he would later become an Ottoman citizen and run for parliamentary elections. Very interesting perspective to have on things when we know what happened later on. You know, I think what's most interesting about this period is that, for example, I would imagine most Israeli children grew up and, and many people know that David Ben-Gurion was in Istanbul, but they never do anything with that information because this information that, you know, the, the, with the knowledge that David Ben-Gurion is, is integrating into the Ottoman system, it basically goes against the trend of him being this sort of leader that, that can foresee the future. And, and, you know, it strengthens on one hand his pragmatism, you know, the idea that he's a very pragmatic leader on one hand. But on the other hand, it really breaks the Zionist narrative, puts it into a different direction that we it's very hard for us to imagine, right? The, the idea that the future leaders of the Jewish state didn't foresee that the Ottomans are going to fall, the Ottoman system, you know, the whole Ottoman Empire is going to come to an end, literally within, you know, almost 10 years of them being there. So the idea is that, you know, when, when he goes there and he says, you know, we need to set up a Ottoman you know, Hebrew student union, it, it, it really shows us he is putting all his future into the into the Ottoman state. And this idea of, you know, becoming at one day a parliament member, um, and maybe a representative. Israeli history is taught as if everything was just going to fall into place. And the end some game is a state. The narrative is too smooth. But if we read what on the Ottoman period, the fact is, is that they don't know that World War I is going to happen. Is we see that exactly that David Ben-Gurion is going there to study law because that's the future. That's their future being politicians. Now, we, we, I want to bring the attention to his own name, Carmi Effendi. He's a really interesting character because he really breaks down the narrative of this idea of the inevitability of a state. His father was Aaron Eisenberg, who immigrated to Palestine, you know, a Russian Jew that immigrates to Palestine. And his son is, is quite interesting because his son at a very young age decides, you know, Palestine is too small for me. And in the post-Ottoman Young Turk Revolution, he actually says, you know, I want to show them that we can contribute something to this society also. And he is a, you know, staunch Zionist that's brought up speaking Hebrew. And when God Frumkin is working there, at the same time David Ben-Gurion is there, Carmi comes there to study in agricultural school. And from the agricultural school, he says, you know what? This world is too small for me. I want to join the army, the Ottoman army. And lo and behold, right then the Balkan Wars break out. And Carmi goes to fight and he's declared Ghazi Carmi Effendi. And he's really portrayed as not only uh, one of the first Jewish officers in the army eventually, right? But he's also portrayed one of the first Hebrew-speaking Jewish officers in the army. Carmi Effendi later comes back to Palestine. He's praised in all the newspapers 
papers, the new Jewish hero. And this idea of non-Muslims joining the army and retaining their cultural and uh, religious identity within this Ottoman framework, it's, it's really fashionable during this period. So Jews are looking to Armenians and saying, you know what, if, if they want their rights, they're going to join the army and they're going to get their rights. And Greeks are the same way. So what we have here is that by integration, you're going to be able to separate and create your own autonomous community. But a key to separation, a key to receiving some kind of cultural autonomy is through the army to show that you are loyal subjects of or loyal citizens by this time, loyal citizens of the army. So Carmi, not only, you know, he comes back, he's praised, but then World War One comes around and he fights in World War One on the Eastern Front. He falls POW and later he dies as a POW teaching other Jewish people Hebrew within the POW camp in Russia. So think about the irony here. His father moves to Palestine, leaves or flees Russia to Palestine, raises him, and then he he falls POW and dies as a POW. And he's memorialized as a Ottoman Shahid, a Ottoman martyr. And today is also memorialized within the memorialization of soldiers in the that fought for the land of Israel in the eventual state. So we have a really interesting character here that, right, that he really represents two national movements during this period. One, the Jewish national movement, and one, the Ottoman national movement that was later um, inherited, of course, by the Turkish Republic. So I think when we see people like Karmi Afendi, that really shows us that we are dealing with a different world. Before we turn to the Palestinians, I wonder if you could comment a bit here on the fact that obviously the Ottoman Empire had a very deep-rooted Sephardic community going back centuries. And a lot of the ties that we're talking about here were Ashkenazi outsiders effectively moving into the empire. And I just wonder if you could comment briefly about any tensions that were between these two very different traditions. How were the traditional Sephardic Jewish Ottoman citizens who had a much deeper connection to the Ottoman Empire? How did they interact with this new tendency, really, this new nationalism that they saw developing in Europe and then being imported, essentially, into the Ottoman lands? The Sephardic community in Istanbul during this period is, is actually quite divided over the issue of, of Zionism. Now, you have a, a camp there that are staunchly anti-Zionist. For example, uh, the editor, David Fresco of uh, El Tiempo, um, was a staunch, I think, clearly anti-Zionist inside and out. But on the other hand, during this period, you do have this new sense of Zionism. The Jewish community are looking to their Armenian compatriots citizens, they're looking to Greeks, they're looking to the Turkish Muslims that are adopting Turkish nationalism, the beginnings of, of a Turkish nationalism. And they don't really find their place in any of these. The tendency is to understand the Tanzimat period as this period as, you know, promising equality to what will become not just non-Muslim subjects, but eventually will become citizens. So what is the place of, of, of the Jewish community during this period? I mean, linguistically, they're speaking this old Spanish dialect, mixed with uh, Turkish and, and other words written in Hebrew characters, Ladino, right? And, you know, at the Young Turk Revolution, many of them are start, you know, start proposing, you know, we need to learn Turkish. Turkish needs to be our, our language. So at this point, you have this new community emerging saying, you know, let's study Hebrew. And I think for the Ottoman Zionists, they literally were not separatists. They never really bought into this idea of, you know, an independent Jewish homeland. 
land. For them, the Jewish homeland was part of their empire. So for the Sephardic community in Palestine, yes, they are now creating ties with the Ashkenazi community through their new adopt adopting of Hebrew. So there is this sort of revival among the Ottoman Sephardic community as well. And they're quite divided on this issue. And it's so interesting to see that one of the, you know, the the in the parliament, it's a it's an Armenian parliamentarian that comes up and defends Zionism and says, you know what, why are they a threat to, to the Ottoman government or the Ottoman lands? Just like we're not a threat, they're not a threat. And, and you can be both. This idea that you can be, a, you know, a proud Jew and also Ottoman. You know, that, that, that issue of Zionism or being called a Zionist, already in this period, it's, it's quite derogatory in Istanbul. There are, during this period, conspiracy theories about young Turks being behind this. And I, I go in a great deal and talk about this, this anti-Semitism that exists in Istanbul. And as a reaction, many Jews in the Ottoman Empire for the first time see that they're going to have to defend their place within the Ottoman society. society. It's very unnerving to them that suddenly they're in the limelight. Suddenly they're talking about Jews in the press, Ottoman Jews and the threat of Zionism. So on one hand, it's saying, you know, we're not Zionists. We're not Zionists whatsoever. We're, we're, we're proud Ottomans. But they still have ties to the Jewish community in Palestine. And I think that's something that we're later on, further in the Turkish Republic, people have a hard time understanding is that Jewish communities in the Ottoman Empire have ties with communities in Palestine and later the state of Israel. And, you know, when you when, when, when they're placed in the, in the center and says, you know, what are you? You know, that's a very hard question to, to answer, right? It, it doesn't mean that they're full on, let's have an independent state in Palestine. But certainly it is their spiritual homeland at the same time. And that spiritual homeland is part of the empire they're living in. So it really complicates, I think it complicates matter for the, the, the Sephardic community. Now, turning to the Palestinians, the book paints a picture of profound ambivalence on the part of the Palestinians towards the Ottoman authorities. And there was this increasing resentment at Ottoman official indifference or inaction to what was going on with increasing Jewish migration. How did the Palestinians see the authorities and how did this change over time? I think for for the for the Palestinians, first and foremost, I think what's what's interesting, and I think what I've tried to highlight in this book is that Zionism was just one issue they had that was not being heard in Istanbul. There's no doubt that they're they're part of the community, and they see that you know they're, they're they are Ottoman citizens, and they are they they were very supportive of the Young Turk Revolution. But they, they at a, at some point they see that they're I, I quote them in the book as of screaming into a valley, right? They yell out out loudly and there's echoes but no one no one is heeding their call no one is coming to them and saying what is happening and really it's only by 1914 that I think the Ottomans understand that they have a real problem in their hands now even before the young Turk revolution you you have documents saying that you know some Ottoman uh, authorities are saying you know this group of people in Jerusalem might pose problems in the future remember nationalism was not just happening in in the in the Arab lands but it, by then it was by 1913, basically, there's almost no Ottoman stronghold in the Balkans, right? It's basically what transformed into a Turkish Arab empire, right? Which really changes the way we understand the Ottoman, the last years of the Ottoman state. Because before, you know, up until the beginning of the 16th century, the Ottomans didn't rule over Jerusalem, Mecca, and Medina. They didn't rule over the, mostly the Arab territories. It was mostly a, a southeastern, southeastern European empire. By the end of the Ottoman Empire, it's now 
now much more a Turkish Arab empire. So A, you have this sort of sort of rise in, of, of, of Arab nationalism, demanding from Ottoman administrations to speak to at least no Arabic when they come to Palestine, right? And this is this is being heard in Damascus and Beirut and other places. And on the level of, of the peasants in, in Palestine, they don't trust the Ottoman authorities. So they're sending direct petitions of the, the local uh, Ottoman administration, the Mutasaraf of Jerusalem. So often they're going to send their, their petitions directly to Istanbul because what they see is that this Ottoman uh, administra- local Ottoman in- administration is corrupt for a great part. And we're afraid that our complaints aren't going to be, be heard in Istanbul. They're, they're never going to reach Istanbul. So that's one thing is a, a general general mistrust of the of the Ottoman uh, administration. Now, people like Ruhi Al-Khazi, Saeed Al-Husseini, parliamentarians, they on the other hand are really part of this new Ottoman world of liberty and e- equality that's promised under the Young Turk Revolution. So right after the 1908 uh, revolution, you see numerous celebrations of Jews and Arabs together celebrating the Young Turk Revolution. This really genuine excitement in Palestine of Jewish people and Arab people coming together. But what I argue is, is that the Young Turk Revolution actually put these two communities on a collision course or in competition. Basically, it's not a horizontal horizontal equality. The equality for non-Muslims was this idea that the local Jewish community is going to be equal vis-a-vis the administration in Istanbul. But we're never talking about across the board equality. So Palestinians understand that, yes, Jews are, 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 are seizing rights in Istanbul, but where are we now? And it's in this case that we see that it's the Muslims and Christians uniting together and then saying, now we are in this sort of millet system now where Arabs are almost considered a millet and they have to place their demands in Istanbul. And I think that really is a disappointing moment for, for, for Palestinians. They are writing in the newspapers left and right. And these newspapers are being closed by the Ottoman authorities because they are deemed anti-Semitic. And these, this is done by complaints of people in the Jewish community that complain to the chief rabbi, you know, look at these hateful messages about the Jewish community here. The Palestinians, on the other hand, are saying, no, in, in Istanbul, it's not that we're anti-Semitic. In fact, we have no problem with, with Jewish people. We have a problem that they are not only purchasing land, but then they are evicting Arabs from the land. They see in the future that one day they might be able to create what they, you know, one Ottoman uh, parliamentarian calls it, I forget which one calls it a Yehudi stand, right? A Jewish land within the Ottoman Empire. Now, remember that the Palestinians are able to convince other Arabs and other people in the opposition that this is going just to create a new ethnic conflict in the region and uh, pose a problem for the Ottomans in the future. Of course, the Ottomans had 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 their fair share already in in the Balkans. But the Ottoman, overall, the Ottoman authorities up until 1914 don't really see this this comparison. And I think the Palestinians, as they become more and more desperate to be heard in Istanbul, their claims become more exaggerated also. So for example, and petitions to the Ottoman Empire, they they say, you know, like you are suffering pain through the Balkan Wars, well, we're suffering the same thing by Zionist migration. And I don't think this really went well in went over well in Istanbul because if you if you talk about the Balkan Wars 
for the Ottoman Empire, for the Ottoman state, this was a tragic war that, you know, caused the influx of thousands and thousands of refugees into their land. So I think somehow the Palestinian exaggeration of making it worse and claiming that, you know, 300,000, you know, Jews have migrated to Palestine, which was obviously obviously not the case. Maybe it was 100,000 Jews um, had migrated. But they're, they're, the, the point is they're exaggerated numbers. And I think this actually has had a reverse effect to some extent saying you really are exaggerating this and you have something apparently against against the Jewish community that's more than just settlement but clearly if you look at all the petitions the Palestinians were very very worried that their voice wasn't being heard in, in Istanbul and through their newspapers you can you can read that by 1914 you have poetry talking about the fear that they're going to lose the homeland and reading this that to think that three years later, they fall to British imperialism. It's fascinating. The Palestinians were always worried the fear of British imperialism and that idea that the, the British Empire is going to also one day control the land of, of Palestine. Um, and it wouldn't take much for this fear to be real. Think about it. Egypt is on, uh, under occupation, British occupation during this period. You have India right around the corner. So this was also a fear of the, of the Palestinians. And it's these two things coming together that I, that I think that made their fear so concrete. And these two come together in 1917 during the, the Balfour Declaration that forever changed Palestine and the politics of Palestine. And related to all this, in chapter three of the book, you give an account of the Haram al-Sharif incident in which the Palestinians were stirred to protest by this English archaeological team's dig within the holy compound of the Haram al-Sharif, which houses, of course, the Dome of the Rock. And you base this chapter on a dossier in the Ottoman state archives. And this incident really highlighted the Palestinians' growing frustration with the Ottoman local administration in the Ottoman state as a whole uh, for its inability to protect one of Islam's holiest sites. Just talk about this. What was this incident? What happened? And why did it become this flashpoint of tension and a symbol, really, of the dynamics, political dynamics that were going on uh, at the time? So I went to the Ottoman archives in the hope to find tons of material about Zionism. And we, we, we have a lot of documents and political petitions. But then I found this dossier that was about 150 pages, 200 pages. And it was about an archaeological dig. It's, it's, it's really an Indiana Jones story. And it's really interesting now in the next year or two, there's, there's going to be two or three articles coming out on this dig and perhaps even a book in the future. There's actually quite a bit of interest in the story because it really is, we think, the source of Indiana Jones. It's this Captain Parker, this British notable that he meets up with this Finnish biblical uh, scholar and they say they've decoded the secrets of Solomon. Where are Solomon's treasures under the Haram al-Sharif, which is the, the Temple Mount? So they gather up uh, money through stocks. They cut a deal with the Ottomans, right? They cut a deal with the Ottoman finance uh, ministers. And then they go to Palestine and dig for almost three years in secrecy. And people start getting upset saying, what are they doing there? And, you know, the, the, the excuse was that they're, they're trying to increase water production. And in the end, they're giving employment to people. But it was a very, a very silenced 
dig. And then one night in April 1911, they go to dig on the top of the Temple Mount, in the Haram al-Sharif itself, to dig completely straight down. Now, this is happening as Palestinians were on the Nebi Musa pilgrimage, which is an annual pilgrimage that really creates this dynamic during this period where Palestine, you know, Muslims leave Jerusalem just as Jews are celebrating Passover and Christian pilgrims are coming to visit the city. So during this period, they go and dig and they're, it's seen and, and, and comes out immediately that there is a team led by Captain Parker digging in the most one of the most holiest sites of Islam. You know, so often we always talk about, you know, Mecca being the holiest site, Mecca, Medina, and then Jerusalem. But for Palestinians, Jerusalem has local importance. It's an integral part of their identity. And the ideas that they're protecting the site are very, very real. So once the pilgrims come back from this visit to the, the site of Nebi Musa, this riot breaks out basically over the desecration of the holy site. Their anger was not just with the British. It was more so with the Ottomans. And they told the Ottomans basically, they said, how did you cut a deal with this archaeological expedition that's going to desecrate our sites? And um, in the end, the director or the person in charge of the holy site excuse me, he's taking to Beirut on trial, and you have the Armenian Pagop Makastar that's taken also is arrested. Um, no one's executed in the end. But the moment, this really shows us that Palestinians had other things that they were focused on, just not on Zionism. And I think when we, you know, when we look at it in this light, the Palestinians saying, you know, we are the protectorates of Jerusalem. We're the guardians of these holy sites. After the Haram al-Sharif incident, they start to discuss ways that they can place hold on the on Jerusalem, how they can actually take steps to strengthen their hold on Jerusalem and protect it as a holy site. And this, you have great debates in the newspapers because it really is of concern, not just of, uh, of Muslims, but also of the Christian community. The dynamic during the Palestinian period, the Ottoman-Palestine period, is that the editors of the newspaper are Christian, but the notables are Muslim. And both of them are, they, they merge together and, you know, they say, for example, the, the newspaper Philistine says this is the number one event we covered after opening up as a newspaper in 1911. So for, for local Palestinians, it was of utmost importance. Now the desecration of the holy site made waves to Syria, made waves to the heartlands of what would, would be the Ottoman Empire, to Istanbul, and went all the way to India. The British were very worried, you know, that Indian Muslims, that, that this could lead to a Uprising. And we know that they have an Indian Muslim delegation to the Haram al-Sharif about four months later to check it out. So we learn a lot of things. But what do we learn also is that the Palestinian local community is saying we need to create ways to place hold on this. And that's not through violence or through a sword. We need to create institutions. And that is a Islamic university. And they compare it to, you know, this is going to be as strong as or as prestigious as al Azhar in Egypt, but Palestine as a middle point between the Arabian Peninsula, between Egypt and between Istanbul, we're going to get students from different areas, not just studying Islamic sciences, but modern modern topics also, you know. It was going to be, they use the word university. Now, this is interesting for us because at the same time, the Jewish community is talking about the establishment of a Jewish university in Jerusalem, which is going to become the Hebrew University. And the Palestinian community, Muslims and Christians, are talking about institutions of higher education in Jerusalem as well. And that's also how we see the division
division between the these two communities. So to sum up the, the Haram al-Sharif incident, yeah, we learn a lot about how the Palestinians once again were disappointed that the Ottomans weren't doing more. At the same time, we learned that the Ottomans are very fearful that a riot could break out in Jerusalem and that this would have greater impl implications on the Ottoman hold over Palestine. So they actually have to send in troops, they send in extra troops to calm this, to calm to you know the, the people to make sure that this is not going to not going to lose control. Now, why is this lastly interesting in the last point? Why is it interesting? Because this case is has nothing to do with the Jewish community. And I think that's why it's so important, right? We see that the local population stand, unite, and riot, or they call it general strike, for example. I, I, I think rioting is a bit exaggerated. There are, you know, riots there, but it's much more. It's calling a strike and it's saying, this is our responsibility. And that doesn't mean it's just between Jews and Palestinians later on, but also between the Ottoman Authority and the local Palestinian community as well. That was Louis Fishman. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 127. Remember, if you enjoyed Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by becoming a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% IB Tourist Bloomsbury book discount, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon. Account. Also, do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback, or abuse to WilliamJohnArmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Turkey Book Talk's partner initiative, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Frazier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo, who are friends of Turkey Book Talk. It's a very useful weekly package that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Arriving in your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Just search for Turkey Recap on Twitter or Google to find out how to subscribe. But until our next episode, episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening. Bütün <gülüyor> dolaştım. Anladım ki